Good morning. My name is Jonathan Swift, and um, I thought I'd introduce myself to you. But first, I want to say thank you. Thank you for this privilege to be with you, uh, to worship with you. Thank you, musicians, for leading us in some of my favorite songs and hymns. Uh, thank you, Troy, for leading us in a very thoughtful and, um, for me, a moving taking of the meal of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ today. Uh, it, is, it is a joy to worship with God's people, to be with you, and now to turn to worshiping the Lord together with you uh, in His Word. A little bit about myself, so you know who's talking to you today. Um, my, I told you my name. I'm married uh, for 30 years uh, to the same wife. Uh, Christy is her name, and uh, that says a lot about her, uh, if you knew anything about me. And uh, we uh, met in Michigan in college, and uh, then uh, went off to seminary in the, on the east coast of the United States. After that, we uh, lived in Jordan for a year where we studied uh, Arabic. Then we came back to my hometown, which is Dearborn, Michigan. Uh, it's where I currently live. And uh, Dearborn, Michigan, if you're not familiar with that, is a, uh, it's not really a, a suburb. It's kind of a little more urban, but it's, a, it's an outlying city that borders Detroit. And we have one of the most densely uh, Muslim, densely populated Muslim populations in the United States there. Um, mostly people from uh, Lebanon, from Yemen, and Iraq, uh, but we have met people from all over the Middle East and North Africa uh, in, in my hometown where I grew up. Uh, but those are the main, those are the largest communities that are there. Some are Shiite Muslims, some are Sunni Muslims. And uh, in the high school that I went to, now there are actually uh, problems uh, like almost like gangs uh, in the high school, based not around any kind of turf, but around Shiite and Sunni differences uh, in the Muslim world. Um, uh, that's what my city's like, where I, where I grew up and where I've been for the last uh, 10 years, uh, where uh, we have been planting Christ Community Church. Uh, I am no longer the pastor of Christ Community Church, although I planted it uh, with my family and a team of, uh, of, of, of leaders. Uh, we have now uh, hired a new pastor to replace me because I am now on staff with Word Partners, the ministry that was mentioned earlier. We train pastors uh, around the world, 63 different countries, uh, and we train them very specifically in what are called hermeneutical principles. What's that? Those are principles by which we interpret Scripture according to Scripture. And, uh, and we train pastors in that. And um, you may know that uh, around the world, uh, many pastors are pastoring for years and years in the pulpits and actually don't have solid principles by which they preach. And so they might read a passage, but they don't actually preach that passage. Uh, we find that all over the place. Um, and so my particular job with uh, Word Partners is I'm the director of the Middle East and North Africa training that we do. Uh, we are currently uh, training in two different countries. Uh, we've done training in about four different countries, and we are always exploring invitations um, by pastors in the Middle East and North Africa to do more training. Uh, we do workshops in one book at a time. We do it twice a year for four years. And in that time, we train up pastors not only to preach 
according to Scripture, preach the Scripture according to Scripture, we also train them to train others. So that in places like uh, Brazil, uh, they no longer, we no longer go there because Brazil has embraced this training. Uh, the, the, the partners we have there embrace the training. They are training up their own people in hundreds of groups around Brazil, and they are even sending their uh, missionaries to other places. So that I've bumped into uh, Brazilians who have had our training in Jordan. Um, I've bumped into them in Morocco, and we're now, you know, looking at places where we can partner together with them in the training. It's, it's kind of come full circle. Uh, we totally expect that someday the, the p pastors in the Middle East and North Africa that we are training will one day be training others without us and, uh, and doing it themselves. That's a little bit about what I do. Um, my wife and I have five children, um, and uh, we often had them in service with us, so that's no problem. I'm used to that. Uh, a little bit of noise helps keep us awake, and it means that uh, the church is growing, isn't it? Um, my kids are all but one are married, and uh, I have five boys and one girl, and um, uh, my two, I have two boys that live on the west coast of Michigan. I have a son that lives in South Carolina, and he and his wife have given us two grandchildren, and so I'm already a grandfather. They call me Pops. And um, my uh, daughter lives in the Netherlands. She married a Dutch guy. I told her not to. She did anyways. And uh, so we just got back from visiting her. We were on the way back from the Middle East, and my wife and I stopped and spent some time, spent Easter with, with my daughter. Uh, and my youngest uh, son lives at home. He's actually a bodybuilder and, um, and has his uh, certificate in, uh, in physical training or uh, personal training. Anyways, a little bit about me. Uh, we've been in ministry from coast to coast. I've, lived, I've, I've been a youth pastor in New, New Hampshire. I've been a se senior pastor in Washington State. I've been a student uh, in Jordan. I've been, I forgot we, to tell you, we lived in, in Lebanon for six years uh, where I was a missionary. Uh, so we've been all over the place. But for the last 10 years, I've been in Dearborn planting a church, and now uh, I'm working with Word Partners. Enough about me. Let's talk about the Word of God. Um, no, I'm going to tell you a little bit about me because that's my first illustration. Um, I wonder if you've ever um, read a story or a book that you just couldn't put down. I mean, you just, it's just page after page. And, and specifically like a story, a, a novel, uh, not, not a textbook. If some people are strange and can't put down textbooks, but, but like a story, a novel, right? And you just couldn't put it down. Um, now, when I was a boy, um, I didn't like to read, and, and that's not good, children, okay? Uh, I like to read now, uh, and I'll tell you why. Uh, when I was about 11 years old, my mom gave me J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, and I started reading that book, and I could not put it down. It was on a family vacation. I, just, I could not put the book down. I was hooked. I, I read, after that, I read the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy, and, um, and I've read it to our kids, and they like it. They went out when they were little. I put on voices for all the different, you know, characters. Um, but I, in that time, when I read the Lord of the Rings trilogy, I, I discovered the entrancing power of a well-told story. And if you're not familiar with the Lord of the Rings I don't know where you've been, but uh, you might want to read it. It's, it's a story of the great struggle between good and evil, um, light 
and darkness. It's a story of the rise and the fall of great kings and kingdoms. It's a story riddled with fierce and bloody battles and war. It's a story heightened with poetry and with song. It's a story of small and seemingly insignificant people like hobbits rising to heroic acts of greatness that bring down formidable foes. Have you ever read a story like that? What is it about such epic stories that are so well told, these sagas, that what is it about them that draw us in? They hold our attention. They inspire us. They leave us coming back for more. Here's what I think. I think such stories tell and retell humanity's story. Right? They tell the story of us in different ways, our stories. Our stories, then, are born out of God's story. Right? I think the best stories actually reflect God's story and how our stories are couched in God's story. God's story is the context of each of our stories, right? Story, telling a story, narrative, it's, it's the primary way that God has spoken to us. Have you thought about that? It's through stories. Now, the, you know that the Bible is made up of many kinds of literature, right? It's, it's all, it uses all kinds of genres, we say. It's one of the principles we teach at Word Partners, right? It, narrative, law, wisdom, poetry, letters, apocalyptic visions, they're all in there. But all of these kinds of literature that we discover in the Bible, they all serve together within an overall narrative, a story. It tells this epic saga of God, our great king, right? And our stories, our journeys, our stories fit within that great story. Now, First and Second Samuel, we're thinking, when are we going to get into First and Second Samuel? Here it is, First and Second Samuel. And it's not just First Samuel, it's First, first and Second Samuel. It's one long unit. It all goes together. It's one chunk of the story, okay? And First and Second Samuel tells an important part of God's epic saga, okay? All the elements that we see in Tolkien's classic are also seen in First and Second Samuel. It's a story of a great struggle between good and evil, light and darkness. It's a story of the rise and fall of kings who come from humble and insignificant beginnings. Yet, heroically, they defeat formidable foes. It's a story riddled with fierce and bloody battles. It's a story heightened and framed with poetry and song. And all of this is couched in the story of God, our great king, who provides and preserves his earthly king to save his people, to deliver his people, ultimately by promising a forever king. Let me repeat that because that's what First and Second Samuel is all about. It's a great epic saga or part of the great story of God, of God our king, this great king provides and preserves his earthly king to save his people, to deliver his people, ultimately by promising 
a forever king. Now, to tell this epic story, God has led the author of First and Second Samuel to frame it with three poems or songs. Hannah's prophetic prayer song at the beginning, which was read earlier for us in 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. And at the end, we see David's song of deliverance. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 22. And then in the middle of the story, of the, of the two books, right? In the middle of the story, we hear David's song of lament over the deaths of Saul and his son Jonathan. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 17 to 27. So there's a song at the beginning, there's a song of lament in the middle, and there's a song of deliverance at the end, which frames the whole of the story. So this morning, what we're going to do is understand how these stories have been placed with particular attention to the song at the beginning. And so we're going to look at the themes that we see in Hannah's song in the beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And we're going to see how the themes and the things that she sings about are worked out and unfold into the rest of the story. This is a very strange sermon because it's not just on one text. And this is something we actually encourage our pastors to do. Uh, when they're preaching through a, a series or a book of the Bible. Is that this? Uh, we, we encourage them to get a hold of the, of, the, of the whole story and preach a sermon on the whole book, on the whole book of whatever they're preaching. And that's what we're going to do today. This is a sermon on First and Second Samuel. But we're looking at it through the themes that are set up for us in chapter 2 in Hannah's song. Um, so let's talk about Hannah. And this is sort of a summary of chapter, of chapter one. Hannah was one of two wives married to a man named Elkanah. Hannah was childless. She had no son. She had no heir. That's important in those days. You had to have an heir, right? You had to have a son to pass on the inheritance. Hannah names uh, her son Samuel when she's given a son. She doesn't have a son. She prays and prays to God in distress. And she prays relentlessly and God answers. He gives her a son. She names him Samuel. The, word, the name Samuel means God hears. And she dedicates little Samuel to the ministry of the Lord in the tabernacle, like that, that tent where they used to meet and where the, uh, the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies in the center of that tent. And it's where the priests would administer and minister to the people and, and be a mediation between God and the people. He give, she gives Samuel to service as a young boy over to service under this priest named Eli. And so he grows up there in, in the presence of God. And that, that Ark of the Covenant, that's where God would manifest his dwelling presence among his people. Though we're told at that time, the time that Hannah lived in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel, that God's word was rare in those days. They hadn't heard from God in a long time. In response to God's goodness to her, for giving her a son, Hannah worshiped the Lord with this song that we heard read earlier in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. 
And this prayer song, in a sense, not only is a dedication of Samuel, but it also is prophetic and opens our ears and eyes open to what is going to be revealed in the rest of this story. So if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 2, and we'll be talking about some of these verses here as it points us forward into the rest of the story. The first movement of, of the story is about how God provides a king. In Hannah's day, the head priests in Shiloh, uh, it wasn't, the uh, tabernacle was not in Jerusalem yet. David would accomplish that. It was in a place called Shiloh. And the head priest, as I said, his name was Eli. Now, Eli had two sons, and these sons were wicked. They were just downright wicked. And they used their positions of power as priests for personal gain and for immorality, and they desecrated the presence of God. Now, these were wicked times. These two sons of Eli were wicked men who lived in wicked times. What do we know about the times that uh, Hannah lived in and Eli uh, and, and that Samuel was born into? Well, if we look at the end of the book of Judges, we get a sense of what the times were like. The last verse of the book of Judges sets the scene. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did was right what was right in their own eyes. That's, that, that describes the people of God at that time. It was, it was pretty rough. That was the time of Ruth. That was the time of Hannah and of Eli. So Eli's sons were doing what was right in their own eyes. And Eli, their father, was rather spineless, and he refused to do much more than just slap them on the wrists. So here at the outset of the story, we see a stark contrast between the faith of powerless Hannah, who gives her beloved son, her only son, to the Lord, and then the wickedness of those who are in power, exploiting all that is good, all that is sacred for their own gain. But Hannah's song tells us that God will have the last word. And a scene that happens in chapter 3 tells us that God will have the last word. God sends a, a prophet to Eli, and God promises through that prophet to bring Eli's household to a just end. And this is the kind of thing that Hannah has sung about. She sings praise to God for raising her up and people like her, raising her up and for breaking down the proud and the arrogant and the mighty. In praying this way, she forecasts what God will do over and over again throughout this story of First and Second Samuel. God exalts the powerless and he topples the powerful to show that he alone is the king who orchestrates the story. In verses 1 and 2 of Hannah's song, in chapter 2, uh, Hannah prays this, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides or is enlarged uh, against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. What does it mean that Hannah's horn is exalted in the Lord? The horn, like the horn of a, of a ram, 
was a symbol of strength and of victory. Probably it was because it was used as a trumpet. They would blow the horn. And, and like, have you ever seen a shofar? That's what it is. It's a ram's horn. And it would be blown uh, to communicate in war. A horn blast would announce victory over the enemy. And that was good news, that the good guys had been delivered by the Lord in war. In 1 Samuel, the horn was also used, if you capped off the end and both ends, it was used as a container, a container for anointing oil, oil that they would anoint as a sign of the Spirit being upon someone for a particular ministry or position. And this is what Samuel does with David. In chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, he anoints David with oil to symbolize the Spirit has come upon him for the office of being the king. All right. So Hannah uses this imagery of the horn again at the end of her prayer when her song turns now to the future. Right? She, she's talking about how God is and how he functions. And then in verse 10, she turns to the future. And this song actually prophesies. It says, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Hannah has prophetically announced the coming of the Lord's king, his anointed over Israel at a time when there still is not no king. There's no king in Israel. But he's coming. His advent is on the horizon. God will anoint his king from a horn and give his anointed strength and victory, a victory blast from the horn to announce deliverance from his enemies. Now, guess what? David uses the exact same imagery in his song of deliverance from Saul that the author has put at the end of the story in 2 Samuel 22. He uses the exact same imagery. He says in 2 Samuel 22, verse 3, uh, 2a and 3, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and deliverer. Sounds just like what Hannah said. In verse 3, my, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation. That's what David sings. So here's the king singing that God has announced his victory and his deliverance from his enemies. In verse 49 of his song at the end there, he says, You exalted me to God. He's singing this. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. Hannah's prayer has been answered in the life of David. So the whole story is framed by Hannah's song of prophecy and David's song of deliverance. Hannah sings of an exalted king when there isn't a king yet. And at the end, we hear David, God's chosen king, sing that indeed God has exalted and delivered him in this way. So Hannah's prophecy launches us into the rest of the Samuel saga, a story of God's exaltation of the lowly and breaking down of the mighty as he preserves his earthly king in order to deliver his undeserving people. Hannah, back to Hannah again, 
She actually sees her own circumstances then as a small part of God's great epic story. Her story fits into God's story. And she sees her story as a reflection of God's story. What God has done in her life, God does and continues to do and promises to do in the future in the lives of his people. In verse 5 of her song, she sings, The barren has born seven. That's Hannah's story. She had no children. She was barren. Now she has children. God has given her a son, and though she was like many women before her in God's great story, right? Do you notice that Hannah's story is similar to Sarah, Abraham's wife, similar to Rachel, Jacob's wife, or Rebecca, Isaac's wife? She's just another one in the part of God's story. She sees these patterns. God, this is the way you function. You make the barren to have children. You take the low and you exalt them. I'm like that. I'm in your story, O Lord. And all the glory goes to the Lord. So like all these women before her, Hannah sees her own grief and relief from her grief as part of a glorious pattern of God's work and his hand at work in the lives of his people, in Israel's story, in her own story. So I, I have to ask at this point, where are you in your story? What has what your story been so far? Uh, are you experiencing grief and calling out to God for relief from that grief? What kinds of grief and disappointments have you been experiencing in your story? Step one of finding that relief is to do like we see Hannah doing here. Our hearts begin to be transformed from being so focused on our own griefs and disappointments when we realize that our circumstances are a small part of God's great story. And he's still telling the story, and he's still in control and orchestrating that story. Hannah remembered the way that God does things. She remembered how he wields his sovereignty over all circumstances. I don't know about you, about you, but sometimes, you know, I've studied a lot of theology, and I've become convinced by Scripture that God is sovereign, and he's sovereign over every little thing that happens. So when something pretty stinky happens in my life, I say, God, why'd you do that? Do you ever wrestle with God's sovereignty? If you're sovereign, Lord, why are you doing it that way? This is where we start. We acknowledge that God is still telling the story. That yes, he's in control, and yes, he's allowed this. Over and over again, we see Hannah in, the, in chapter 1. As you read chapter 1, I would encourage you to, do, to begin reading through 1 Samuel as, as, when you go home today. Over and over, it says, the Lord closed her womb. She understood that. It didn't make it easier, but she had hope in the Lord, even in her disappointment. She knew that God causes great reversals. That's what her song's about, great reversals. 
Right? The Lord kills and brings to life, verse 6. The Lord makes the poor and makes the rich. He brings low and he exalts, verse 7. Because everything belongs to the Lord, our creator. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world, verse 8. I pray that the Lord would give us eyes to see how our stories are couched in God's story. And that even when we're disappointed and experiencing grief, that we'll begin to have relief when we see that God is still telling the story. It's not done yet. And we have no idea what he's going to bring out of the difficulties through the barrenness, through the grief. It is the Lord and the Lord alone who stands behind not only every great turn of redemptive history, but also every seemingly insignificant event. It is the Lord who closed Hannah's womb. It's, it's said at least twice in chapter 1. It was the Lord who answered her desperate prayer. It was the Lord who made his word rare in those days. Right? It wasn't because of anybody else. The Lord decided to make his word rare in those days. But he's also the one who raised up Samuel as the last great judge over Israel. And it says that he let none of his words fall to the ground. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 19. The Lord is the mighty king who was enthroned above the cherubim, sculpted in the lid of the Ark of the Covenant that the people uh, foolishly brought out into war with them in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel. And it's the Lord that let the Ark get captured by the Philistines in that battle. And in that same battle, it was the Lord who brought down Eli's wicked sons to their just end, just as he, as he prophesied through the man of God who came to Eli. God was orchestrating the whole thing. It was the Lord alone who, re, who was rejected by the people when they demanded a king like all the other nations, even though God himself was their true king. That's chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. It's a low point in the story. And it was the Lord who gave Israel Saul as their king, a man just like the kings of the nations, lacking the heart of God. To discipline them, he gave them exactly what they wanted. Children, be careful what you ask your parents for. You might get it, and it might discipline you. It was the Lord who chose, though, seemingly insignificant David from among his brothers to rule in Saul's place with justice and righteousness. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. That's what he said to Samuel when he chose David to be king. Don't look at the outward appearance. Look at the heart. That's what the Lord sees. It was the Lord. This is, a, this is one to wrestle with. It was the Lord who gave Saul an evil spirit when he anointed David in his place. God is sovereign. It was the Lord in the valley of Elah who took that overlooked little shepherd boy and struck down Goliath the giant with one smooth stone. There's no way that little rock would have killed a giant on its own. That was a miraculous kill. God was behind that kill. Because, as David cried out, the battle belongs to the Lord. 
It was the Lord who delivered David from King Saul as Saul chased him all over Judah and Philistia to kill him. Tried to kill him twice. It was the Lord that helped David to, be, to evade those attempts on his life by Saul. And just as Hannah sang, right, the Lord kills and brings to life, it was the Lord who gave Saul to be killed in a bloody battle with the Philistines at the very end of 1 Samuel. My friends, this story will bring you uncomfortably face-to-face with any lingering reluctance you may have to ascribe all authority and all sovereignty to the Lord. The next part of the story, as we move into 2 Samuel, is where God promotes and preserves. He's been preserving his king, but he's now promoting his king. And this, will, this story will cause us to reflect on the state of our own hearts over and over again. And just by way of example, because there's so many stories in First and Second Samuel, think about when we hear that lament in the beginning of Second Samuel of David lamenting over Saul and Jonathan. Now, I get how he would be lamenting over Jonathan, right? They were really close. But lamenting over Saul? A guy possessed with an evil spirit chasing him all over kingdom come, trying to kill him. But he laments, and he says, oh, how the mighty have fallen. When I read that, every single time I read that, I am cut to the heart, and I realize I probably would not have responded the same way upon hearing of the death of my enemy. But that's what David's heart had become under God's moving in his heart, transforming his heart. Not sure I would have had the same heart of mercy for someone who chased me all around, trying to kill me. I'm not sure I have the same heart for people who do much less things to me, for the guy who cuts me off on the highway or someone who wants my job or something like that. No one wants my job. You wouldn't want my job. By example, maybe someone wants your job. But don't misunderstand. David is far from perfect, right? And we find that out Pretty, pretty soon in, in 2 Samuel. Uh, just as Saul had no regard for God's word, David also, this is a quote from uh, 2 Samuel 12, 9, David also despised the word of the Lord. His sin with Bathsheba is described by Scripture as despising God's word. I think that's a good description of what sin is. We know what's right and wrong from the word. We know God's commands. And when we don't follow them, and when we blatantly do exactly the opposite of what he wants us to do, we are despising his word. David does this, chapter 11. He's confronted by uh, Nathan the prophet after he commits adultery with Bathsheba and murdering Uriah, her husband. Okay, at that point you say, what's the difference between David and Saul? Right? <laughs> Saul is a, a marauding murderer, doesn't listen to God, and is, and is despised his word. And now at that point in the story, in, in uh, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, David has had a man murdered, committed adultery with his wife, and has despised the word of God. What's the difference? Well, the difference is this where Saul over and over justified his sin when confronted with it, David immediately repented 
of his sin. And it's through repentance at that point that God preserves his king. Otherwise, David would have been just like Saul. But God preserves him through repentance and realigning his heart to God's heart. What do you do when your sin is revealed to you? Parents, uh, the, the story of Saul is a wonderful way of describing the uh, subtleness of sin. How we like to take God's commands and, 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 then, and then abuse them or despise them, do our own thing, and then make it sound like we're doing the right thing. Such a subtle, tricky thing that children learn to do somehow because of the uh, originality of sin. Right? It's a great story to train them with, to show them, you know, just do what he says. God desires obedience, <laughs> not sacrifice that he didn't ask you for. Right? Don't make your disobedience look like sacrifice to God. Right? Don't paint it up pretty. It's just sin. What do you do when your sin is revealed to you? The one whom God has delivered and is preserving is the one who receives God's word acknowledges his, his or her sin, and repents. Pretty much A, B, C, one, two, three, right? But the story doesn't end there, thankfully, right? Though there would be unspeakable fallout, fallout in David's life because of his sin and rebellion in his family and his kingdom, his son tries to take the kingdom from him, Absalom, God still fulfilled Hannah's prophecy. God delivered and preserved David time and time again. God breaks David's adversaries to pieces. He gives strength to his king and exalts the horn of his anointed. And in the last part of the story, we see God promising his eternal forever king. Backing up to 2 Samuel 5 and 6. And God, we see God has established David finally, Finally, David has established uh, on the throne his rule over all of Israel, not just Judah, but all of Israel at this point. Chapters 5 and 6 of 2 Samuel. David had conquered his enemies. He'd built his palace in Jerusalem where he relocates the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh. And, and that becomes God's sort of earthly throne. You have David's throne and God's earthly throne, the palace and the tabernacle. And in 2 Samuel 7, we find David in his house of cedar, in his palace, and he sees an incongruity. He's looking down the street out the window, and he's, I imagine, okay, he's thinking, I've got this beautiful palace, and here's God living down the street, camping out in a tent. It's time I built God a real house, a temple, right? However, through, though David's, Desire is good, right? What he wants is a, is a right thing. It's not going to happen according to his timing or his plan, but according to the Lord's timing and the Lord's plan. It's the Lord who's telling the story. The Lord is the commander, and the Lord is the king of the story. God tells this to David through the prophet Nathan in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. The Lord says he's always dwelt among his people in a tent as he brought them to their own land. The Lord uh, has been a shepherd to his people. And shepherds, are, they kind of wander around with their people. And that's the way God has been. He's been providing them. He's been protecting them. He's been among them wherever they've gone. 
in a great reversal, just like Hannah had prophesied, God has taken David from following the sheep to be prince over Israel. That's what he says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. And God has been with David wherever he went, cutting off his, all his enemies. David's story has reflected Israel's story, just like Hannah's story reflected Israel's story. Now David's story is reflecting Israel's story. Now the Lord promises to establish, him, establish himself among his people forever. No, David is not going to build the Lord a house, but the Lord will build David a house. The house in David's mind was a temple, right? A building. But God promised a house to David, which is more of a household, a, a dynasty, a lineage of kings. So starting with Solomon, God will establish David's throne and his kingdom forever and ever. There's the promise of the forever king. And at the very end of 2 Samuel, chapters 23 and 24, God gives us a picture of how he will keep this promise. In 2 Samuel 23, David, now like a prophet, like Hannah, foretells in a song that God will indeed keep his everlasting covenant. It's the first time he calls it a covenant, the promise that he had made to David. And he will send a just ruler to his people. Then, in the rest of chapter 23, we see David, the king, actually sharing power and honoring his mighty men. Finally, in chapter 24, we see David acting like a priest who makes a costly sacrifice to appease the wrath of God against the sins of his people. And so we have three portraits of what this king to come is going to be like through David's life. Who is he going to be? Who is this king to come? According to these portraits from David's life, he will be a prophet who mediates a covenant. He will be a king and he will be a priest. So the story actually continues, of course, beyond First and Second Samuel. For generations and generations, the prophets announce that a child is born, a son is given, whose government of peace will see no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. That's Isaiah 9. They foretell of a coming righteous branch from the house of David in Jeremiah 23 that God himself will come as a shepherd seeks out his flock and set up the, over them one shepherd, his servant David, from Ezekiel 34. And then, as we heard read this, this morning, the angel Gabriel comes and announced to Mary, behold, you will conceive in your room, womb a, and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. God broke down the mighty and he exalted the lowly in order to deliver and dwell among his people once again as their king and forever. Not through a temple building, but through a man who was God, the Son of the Most High, and a prophet, and a priest, and a king, none other than Jesus, the Messiah. Do you know what Messiah means? 
anointed one. He is anointed king forever and ever. Then came the greatest reversal of God's story in the whole story. You know what it is, right? We heard this read from Philippians. This King Jesus made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Remember when he washed his disciples' feet like a slave? Being born in the likeness of men, he's low. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, that which was humble and lowly, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the kind of king Jesus is. This is God's forever king. And this is the king that you and I need. Here's how your story fits into the story of God's forever king. When lowly, sinful, undeserving people like us put our faith in King Jesus, when you and I receive God's word, acknowledge our sin and repent and trust by faith in Jesus' death upon the cross as we celebrated here today, that his death is our death, the death of our sin, you and I are also raised and exalted, as Ephesians 2 says, to be seated with him in heavenly places at the right hand of God. And we become the household of God, a holy temple. That's, both, that's in Ephesians 2. That when you put your faith in Christ the king, you become seated like a king. You have that dominion that Adam lost, and you are now made a king under the great king, and it says you become the temple. It's, there's, there's the king and the priest function, and then we have that along with Christ the king. God does a great reversal in our lives. Amen. <laughs> Has God done that great reversal in your life? See, this means that for those who are in Christ, the end of our story in this life is only the beginning of our story with God's eternal king. It's only the beginning. Another great epic series that you need to read to your kids, C.S. Lewis's epic saga, The Chronicles of Narnia. You know, Lewis and Tolkien were friends. At the end of Lewis's last book called The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis concludes the Pevensey children's story like this. This is from that last battle. It says, All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Does that describe 
how your story will unfold? Does Jesus, God's promised forever king, truly rule over your story? If he does, then what you have experienced so far in this life is only the cover page and the the title page. That's it. The real story's to come, where every chapter is better than the last one. Maybe like so many people in First and Second Samuel, your story has taken some turns of difficulty, of doubt, disappointments, discouragement. Maybe like David, you've, you've got a good idea of how you'd like to serve God. Wherever you are, wherever you find yourself in your story, I'd like you to take some time later today to bring your plot line before Jesus the King. Remember how his father sovereignly exalts and brings low. And I want you to look forward with faith and with hope in the great story of God's forever king, where you will be with him forever and where every chapter is better than the one before. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would do that in our lives that you would see, that you would help us see, give us eyes to see, ears to hear your word, and help us to see how our lives fit into your great epic story that will go on forever. Lord, if there are some here who have not trusted in Jesus Christ as their king and savior and deliverer, intermediary priest and Um, and prophet. Lord, I ask that you would turn hearts today to faith in Christ, that they may have a forever story with Christ in eternity. Lord, I pray that we would be able and willing and have the strength by your grace to bring our disappointments and difficulties before you, submit them to you, and acknowledge how our lives are very similar to those who've gone before. Our lives are similar to those who are friends and family in this room and and like many who will come after us and to trust you even when it looks difficult, to turn to you when we've sinned, to repent and realign our hearts. Remind us as we interact with each other that you see the heart, not the exterior. Help us to see one another's hearts. Give us eyes to see what you see and to love one another the way you love. Father, give us hope and strength for difficult days. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.